Hello everyone, my name is Reese Lindmark and you are listening to The Reese Show. On the show, we're trying to clarify what a good future looks like. I know we're all a bit sad about late stage capitalism and we want to transition to something but we don't really know what's next. So, on the show, we interview experts about what is emerging, this beautiful future vision that we can all lean into. I hope it gives you a sense of purpose and clarity about the future. If you like the show, you know, feel free to do something about it. (laughs) You can leave us a five-star review. You can tell your friends. You can name your first child Reese. Whatever makes you happy. And if you really dig it, we have an online school called Root, where we help folks understand these root-level systems to find our root forward. We have cohorts of world-class systems thinkers that run every couple of months. So if you're interested in that, check us out at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. Thanks. Hello, listeners. Today I'm excited to chat with Isabella Garcia Camargo. Isabella works at Stanford's Internet Observatory as a research analyst and as the project manager for two amazing projects that I love, the Election Integrity Partnership and the Virality Project. Um, Isabella, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, excited to dive in and chat. Yeah, it's been cool for me to kind of see as the election and various misinformation, disinformation things were happening, to see EIP, this Election Integrity Partnership, pop up was really cool. And just to see you kind of <laughs> coordinating all the cats there um, was really interesting. So I think maybe let's start with like, could you tell us and the listeners a little bit more on like what the EIP was and like what your role within it was? Totally. So... I think the biggest thing about the EIP and cornerstone to how we're thinking about the model and improvements and what it meant um, is it was very serendipitous. It kind of came up out of nowhere. Um, Really, we were, so there was a group of five Stanford students who went to uh, work at CISA, which is a cybersecurity infrastructure security agency. And that's the agency that really runs the U.S. elections. So I was one of those students Um, I had gone, you know, between my undergrad and master's program um, just for an internship, thinking about democracy. Generally, I like elections. um, So showed up there and uh, was really ready to do whatever. Um, Initially was working on some security products and then kind of talking to election officials, started thinking about, okay, you know, I've been working on disinformation throughout my college time. Um, I really like the problem what are the election officials thinking about as they go into the 2020 election? And how do they think that they're actually going to deal with this? Um, Because, I mean, I had heard about all the disinformation in the 2016 election. You know, people were talking about it for 2020. Um, But really kind of the bottom line was after a couple of weeks of discussing with the election officials, I realized that there wasn't a huge plan per se, right? Um, Especially in comparison to what I knew we were capable of, right? Um, Being at the observatory, I had worked on a lot of takedowns. I knew the tooling that was out there, um, but this tooling wasn't in the hands of the election officials. And frankly, they just didn't have the time to think about this. Um, Running an election is extremely difficult. There's a thousand and one things that you have to be thinking about all the time um, and extremely resource strapped as well. Um, So kind of the idea came up of what if we had a war room, um, which would be monitoring for disinformation in real time 
and then providing these insights to election officials so that they don't just know when a machine breaks down, they know when people are talking about a machine breaking down, for example, or when people are talking about this specific polling station not allowing XYZ voters to come in and vote, right? Uh, and it seemed like a pretty core part of this whole mission of protecting 2020 and protect, protecting the legitimacy of the election. Um, so that's kind of the origin story there. And then the long story short is I brought it up to um, the people who I work with, both at CISA as well as the observatory, spun up the EIP about 100 days out from the election. And um, really, I think to the credit of the leads of the organizations that joined the partnership, <clears throat> sorry, we really, I think the, the most incredible thing was how we were able to make it happen in that time period um, and how much people put aside their incentives um, that they had in their research, in their company, um, in their think tank organization to come together for this goal of let's help these election officials, let's help this organization that runs our elections um, think about this massive problem that's coming up against us. Yeah, that's cool. I think it, um, yeah, like many things, good things in the world, it's just like an organic thing where it's like, oh, y'all aren't thinking about this too much, but it's possible to do a ton of effort here and to kind of pre-bunk the whole, and to get ready for the whole issue that's gonna, that's starting to emerge. Um, and I, for me, I just found myself during, as election times were spinning up, I was like checking in with EIP and being like, okay, what is the current, what are the current narratives? Mm. Okay, stop the steal, blah, blah, blah. And so it's kind of good for me to check in with y'all, but like, did it actually... I guess, and how did you all like determine impact? It's like, were you able to help the election officials like pre-bunk things or like, you know, would there have been X more people died in the, you know, insurrection or whatever than would have died? Like how did, how, what was the, how do you think about impact? Totally. And this is, this is probably one of the most frustrating things about working in the disinformation space. Um, I come from a computer science background and was on my way to do more PM type work in industry uh, before this this info bug got to me but um so for me metrics and determining impact is something that's extremely important and it is how i work it's how i determine what i'm doing day to day um and in the disinformation field this is basically impossible right like there's been research papers and whole doctorates given out of people still trying to understand the impact of disinformation in the 2016 election right not to mention how are we determining impact in real time as we're trying to find narratives in real time so this was extremely frustrating while we were running the EIP. Um, probably the researchers weren't thinking about this every day, but something I thought about every single day. It's like, is what we're doing important? Does it matter? How, what's the bottom line here? And I remember talking to Alex, um, Alex Thomas about this, um, who was the lead for the Stanford side. Um, and, and I just kind of said, hey, I'm super worried. We're writing all these tweets. We're putting out these blog posts. There's 100 people working together towards this effort. But I feel like people still believe that the election is being stolen, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I read it. Like Reese Lindmark, <laughs> random like Twitter person who's super into this crap is into it. But like, is it reaching the folks right. it needs to reach or whatever? Totally. And and also because you know we're putting it out on Twitter. Like, who could possibly be listening on our Twitter page? Right? Is someone who genuinely is going to believe that their vote was stolen going to go follow the EIP Twitter? Like, I didn't think so. Right? Um. And, and I think Alex brought up a couple points which were really, really key here. Um, one of them was, you know, the work that the EIP did was not to go try to get to the deepest rungs of QAnon followers, right? And try to pull them out, right? That's a completely different effort, a completely different ballgame, right? The, I started thinking about the EIP more as an offensive tactic, right? 
Um, disinformation, it moves very quickly. Um, and oftentimes uh, the institutions that we have are reactive towards disinformation. Really what we're trying to do with the EIP is start to get that asymmetrical playing field a bit more level, right? So just bringing the tools to people who could potentially actually reach those voters um, and are in the position to actually put those counter narratives out, just give them the information, you know, get them that narrative, not, you know, 10 minutes after it starts, but at least within the week, within the day, not two months later, right? Um, and so, yes, like we put out a lot of blog posts, we put out our Twitter, all of that was really, really important. But our relationships with the key stakeholders, especially with the election officials and key civil society groups who have the trust in the communities already, I think that was the most valuable part of the EIP. Um, and obviously, you know, you put something out on Twitter, you know, the followers that we have were able to communicate this to their families. That interpersonal connection is also very important. Um, but, you know, the, the Twitter and the likes weren't everything. It was really about the coalition, the partners, the stakeholder relationships that we were able to manage throughout the election. Yeah, that's interesting. What was it like? Just I'm just purely curious, personally curious. You probably, I mean, because as... 2020 started to happen. It was like, okay, this could be a little bit of a sketchy election. Like 2016 has some issues. Okay, 2020, oh, not too much um, Russia yet. Okay, that's pretty good. But like, oh God, like Trump's being a little crazy here. Like, <laughs> oh boy, like stop the steals, like becoming a thing. Like, oh boy, now there's like riots at the Capitol. So like how, what was it like for you to be, you were like, was it a bunch of late nights? Like you being on the call there? Oh gosh. Yeah, no, it was, I don't, the, the period between, August and and November, right? Until after the election call, was called. Uh, that was just one of the craziest periods of kind of my overall work life thus far. It was all the time. It was constant. Like I really, you couldn't think about anything else because you just were seeing the slow burn. It felt like an avalanche in slow motion of in August, we could have told you that January 6th was going to happen, right? <laughs> in August, right? And it was just seeing the accumulation of evidence and seeing how these masses of online users were, were it, it wasn't, it was, it was, it was organic. It was like people were finding the evidence themselves, like framing it and networking with each other to understand and build up these conspiracies. Um, and, and it, it felt pretty helpless at a lot of points. It was just kind of like, what, what am, what am I going to, what am I going to say to these people? Right. You, there's a scaffolding. The scaffolding was a bit grovel there. Um, where no matter what the underlying assumption was, we're looking for evidence of fraud. Um, and we're, we're looking to show how this is going to be a stolen election, right? Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, the way that we worked with the EIP is that we had 12-hour shifts um, where people would be online all day. Um, so it's almost like business hours for disinformation monitoring. Um, and so there was on-call managers, right? I was one of the on-call managers, there were tiers of different analysts and really just trying to operationalize to keep up with this huge flow of disinformation that was coming through. Um, and so we started that in August, ran it through till the election was called. Um, so yes, a lot of hours looking at disinformation, a lot of hours just thinking about, you know, we're overwhelmed with the sources we already have, but where else do we need to be looking? How do we preempt this? How do we make our turnaround a little bit faster? Um, and um, yeah, an incredible experience, but I would characterize it as a slow burn. Um, which was extremely frustrating at times. Yeah. Yeah. Was it a, um, well, there's something interesting about like, 
Yeah, as you start to be aware of like what the information ecosystem is doing and what kinds of like the main memes or whatever, the main like ideas that are like forming from it, as you said, you were able to see in August that there was, oh, and, and everybody was kind of able to see this. So like, okay, fraud is this underlying meta narrative, you know, that is just going to come up and it's just coming up in all these different ways. And so you can kind of, you can see it, you could like predict or whatever, maybe not all the way to, to January 6th, but like you could see that uh, that was going to happen. Is there, and I guess my question is, actually, let, yeah, let's take a step back here for a second. How do you think, and you kind of chat about like, you know, uh, doing the counter narrative work and doing the kind of proactive work and the pre-bunk work or whatever. How do you view these information ecosystems more generally? Like, you know, if you compare and like the, and the ways to make them more fair or more good or less misinformation, how do you, how do you kind of view the system as a whole? <laughs> yeah, it's a tough question. It's a tough question. Yeah. How do you view the information system as a whole? I mean, I can break it down maybe a little bit. I'll, I'll start. So I'll start with um, that infrastructure point, right? I think, and again, from my sense of 2016, I wasn't. I was barely starting kind of my career in 2016. Um, but my sense of that was, um, it was a lot more focused on this foreign interference piece, right? Um, and we didn't see what we saw in 2020, which was 2020, there was a whole machine at work. Um, it was kind of the evolution of um, basically a small child in 2016 coming into maturity in 2020, where there was, it, it's just like a well-oiled machine that could take a small narrative, take an idea that a Sharpie could potentially bleed through a piece of paper and produce out of that a claim that people would be chanting outside a polling station. Like that <laughs> production line is that was new and that was shocking to see happen during the election. Um, you know, how large scale influencers were listening to um, what the masses were saying, what they were concerned about, how they were feeling, um, pull up those ideas and then echo them back down. Um, I think Kate Starbird at the University of Washington has really driven this point home and has a lot of really good images on Twitter that she's been sharing um, about that dynamic but we call it the this the participatory uh, nature of this disinformation. It's not just that Trump was tweeting that the election was going to be stolen. And it's not just that one person in uh, Maricopa County thought that the Sharpie was going to bleed through the piece of paper. Um, the story I'm referring to is Sharpie Gate uh, for anyone that doesn't Sharpie know Gate, it. Sharpie Gate, Sharpie Gate. Yes, <laughs> Sharpie Gate, which was uh, the theory that specifically Republican voters at polling stations were be give, being given Sharpies. Um, which would disenfranchise them because the voting machines would not count their votes. So, uh, but, but to the point was, it's not just someone at the top shouting things down to the users at the bottom, and it's not just users talking among themselves. It's the, it's, it, it's the synthesis of these two. Um, and it's um, the, the, the masses and the populations looking for evidence and creating these stories among themselves um, some mid-scale influencers pushing them up to the top and then large-scale verified influencers taking these narratives and then echoing them down to the bottom, right? And this like vicious cycle that was going on over and over again and just churning out these narratives. Um, so when we, that was, I think, one of the most surprising facets of the information space that certainly was created far before the 2020 election, but was activated in this incredible way during the election. Um, and, and something that is a, it's, it's like a wound, 
um, or <laughs> what is it? It's, it's, it's not a bug. It's a feature or something of the mm -hmm. information ecosystem that we're in because it's rooted into the network. Right. Um, one thing that I yeah, think let is, me pause you yeah. for a second there. Yeah. I think it's interesting to hear. Yeah. I think the 2016 version, as you said, that that was a version where you were kind of like still in, in college or whatever at the time, but so you weren't like deep into your, your work that you're doing now, but I think that there's a, um, 2016 and I wasn't also personally I wasn't I had like a I was doing music education at the time so like wasn't really that into it either um but yeah it sounds like as far as both you and I understand it's like it was it was nation state stuff you know it's kind of like mm. old school you know it's like you know top down you know centralized you know like Russia's like oh let's like get into the um U.S. information ecosystem through these new social media things mm. like that was one of the main stories and, and was powerful in a variety of ways and this one as you said it's kind of like yeah, it's, it's kind of more native. It's it's a little bit more, there's this machine. And the, the interesting thing about, I like you calling it a, a well-oiled machine because it's like these networks, it's, it's kind of like, um, it's taken a, a good amount of time for these networks to come into existence. And now you can imagine them as these like, kind of like network beings that have trust between them and have yeah. like lower transaction costs between them. And that allows them to have this well-oiled machine, as you said, that like moves things from top to middle to bottom, you know, through these, you know, cycles and, and can just take anything. It, it has lots and lots of small experiments to run at the bottom level. Oh, and then one of them, Sharpie gate is powerful. And then it gets the hashtag Sharpie gate. And then it just propagates into the system ridiculously quickly um, because the system's kind of optimized to take things at the bottom and push the most powerful narratives through the system. Is yeah. that, is I mean, that sound? That last good? sentence you just said, that's virality, right? Like that's the point of a lot of these social media algor algorithms. And honestly, less on, less on Twitter, but think about a social media platform like TikTok, for example, right? Where it's, mm -hmm. it's not that you go around and, and follow verified people all the time. It's a lot of the times you're seeing some random person with 10 followers who bubbles up on your feed, right? And it's, it's pushing information at you, right? Um, so I think it's important to note that a lot of these, like the fact that this machine exists, it, it does have to do with how the product, right, is built. Um, and, and, and the veneer of authority that is created within this ecosystem, right? It's, it's not broken English coming out of some Russian bot, right? It is a verified influencer with over a million followers who's appearing also on cable news, right? It is, it's not just Twitter, right? It's their presence across all these different social media platforms on cable news, sometimes elected officials, right? So, so it's not just like, first of all, right. I just said it's part of the product, right? But it's even beyond the product. It's, it's, it's people who in our society have a lot of trust, right? And have engendered this trust and authority, um, and are now just part of the, they, they found their slot within the machine. Right. Um, so I think that that's, that it, that's the problem that I'm most concerned about. Um, not, not because of, you know, it, it's, it's largely because of the continued existence, right. It's not something that I see a clear through line for how we can solve, right. Because people are free to choose who they put their trust into. Right. Um, and, and that ecosystem has proven to be very, very effective at spreading, uh, pretty malicious claims. Yeah. And do you think, you know, thinking about the, the kind of um, solving stuff side, do you think if we have these kind of well-oiled machines that are really good at, you know, uh, rising up viral content and then spreading it within the system, no matter it's like healthiness for everybody or truth or whatever, 
how do you like, I, you know, I'm tempted by the like, oh, let's like add friction back into the system or like, let's, you know, do some like mediating consent stuff or whatever. Like, how do you think about the ways to kind of positively shape these, uh, you know, viral beings, these like weird information ecosystems? Right. So, so yeah, I think there's two things here, right? One along the lines of what you just pointed out, friction, right? Um, recognizing that the fact that these organizations, institutions, machines, I've said a lot of words at this point, like the fact that this entity exists, right, is due to some of the platform affordances, right, that being the algorithm works in their favor, right, because they are these large celebrities. Um, uh, in, our, in our work, we called them repeat spreaders, right, uh, because no matter what they said, uh, they could get something trending on Twitter within 30, 40 minutes, right, um, a narrative that started within this system. So, understanding, okay, what are the platform affordances that continue to allow this system to perpetuate narratives? Um, and is there some friction that we can add in? Um, or how do we think about kind of on platform what that looks like? I think there's also a lot of work to be done on the offensive side here, right? So how do we think about the problem that we're facing is networked. The problem that we're facing is it is, it is vicious. It moves very quickly. Um, it's always been the case that disinformation is created far more quickly than at the, the rate at which we can fact check all this disinformation, right? Um, so we need to be thinking about this problem as, you know, offensively, what are the tools that we can give the trusted versions of this information um, in order to start offensively working against the bubbling up of these narratives, right? In the 2020 election, the most pervasive or, or the, the most promising tool was a rumor control page, right? which uh, I think we've, we've chatted about a lot since the election and which we are now uh, promoting for vaccine misinformation response. Um, but the problem of disinformation is a networked problem. It is organized. It, is, it moves very quickly. And you have to have a networked, quick responding solution um, to start to try to even that playing field. Yeah, interesting. And so like that rumor control page, this is, uh, I'm just looking at it now, it's part of the CISA work, the, which is, and if I understand, CISA for listeners is like, it's like a part of government that works on election integrity and misinformation. Is that roughly so, correct? So, sorry. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> kind of, right? So CISA, it is part of the DHS. Uh, so it's an agency under the DHS mm. that is in charge of all of our critical infrastructure. So that's everything from, you know, highways, electric grids, and elections happen to be, you know, critical infrastructure. So since 2017, they've had the mandate to, okay, elections, you're there to protect it. They've largely, they had focused a lot and improved a lot on the um, hard cyber part there. Um, so they secure all of our voting machines and, you know, how the election is actually run. Uh, but to their mandate, they have also added in the Protect 2020 mission, uh, specific focus on the integrity of the election itself. So that was added, actually. And I think that's a really interesting ad. Uh, but anyways, yeah, just to, to clarify that CISA does a lot more than just elections, but um, has, uh, has had a lot of scrutiny over the past couple of months, uh, obviously, because of the election work. Got it. Yeah. And so I'm looking at the rumor control page and, you know, I'm looking at one of these rumors that says votes are being cast on behalf of dead people and these votes are being counted. And the reality is that, well, it's not really true, you know, like, um, and so I, I, I see the some of the power on this page is just like you could look at it and you could see, oh, okay, here's some negative rumors, here's the reality, and maybe like here's a way to, but I'm thinking about like stop the steal, like the hashtag stop the steal. I'm not sure if that is like 
you know, um, if that is helped or stopped or, or hampered at all mm. by this rumor control page, totally. you know? Absolutely. And I think that that's, I mean, that, that that's a really core point here, right? So like you, you can start to think about these things as there, there's levels, right? Um, nobody is born out of the womb believing stop the steal, right? Stop the steal <laughs> is a scaffolding. It is the overall kind of belief that the election itself is going to be not legitimate, right? So for these scaffolding problems, there are solutions specific to those scaffolding problems. That that, that is that is the most difficult problem, right? Like you're talking about people do not believe in the authority of elected officials, right? And the institution of government itself, right? So you're not going to solve that by having a rumor control page, right? Um, but there are ways that people get pulled into that underlying belief of the scaffolding, right? So you could have gone to vote in Arizona, right? And you could have received a Sharpie and you could have thought everything was okay, right? You go online and then you understand a little bit more about the Sharpie gate uh, narrative and you talk to your friends, maybe some friends who already, you know, completely have lost all faith in that kind of centralized authority and they pull you into the scaffolding, right? So a rumor control page is helpful for, I think, those narratives that bubble up and can pull that questioning population into that underlying, you know, everything is a lie. I am skeptical of anything that's coming out of these institutions. The election officials are corrupt. The whole system is broken, et cetera. Right. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is there's a spectrum here and you can't solve all of it by a rumor control. Um, but you have to basically, you, you start, you start this, you have to mo moderate the problem a little bit. Right. So there's, people who are already radicalized. There's people who completely have faith in every elected official. And on that spectrum, right, targeting the questioning population is a good place to start. Um, but those solutions are very different than uh, people who would look at the rumor control page and say, this is this is a bunch of BS. Yeah, got it. Yeah. I think it's interesting to hear you use the term scaffolding um, a good amount. And it sounds to me, it's like scaffolding. Yeah, it's like, it's the list I, I would call it like a, or the book that I'm writing right now is all about like memes. And so I would call it like a meme plex. It's like mm. a certain, it's a lots of different um, kind of both things that could either be scaffolding you up or like pulling you down, depending on which, whether you want to go up or down. And it is a, yes, like a reinforcing set of ideas that keep on pulling you deeper into it. Or like, how do you think about scaffold? Like how, what are, what's, yeah. How do these scaffolds work? You know, like how, yeah. How do they work? Right. Um, I, when I say the word scaffolding, I think what I'm trying to get at is it's like a framework, right? It's the lens through which you view new information that's coming to you, right? Um, and we all have these frameworks, right? It's not, it's not that just half the population or a tenth of the population has one framework, right? And everyone is, everyone else is in agreement, right? No, everyone has a framework through which they understand facts, through which they understand. It's like your bias, right? Um, whether or not you'll believe in A or B or C, right? So, but, but when I'm talking about, so, so, so that's what, what I mean by scaffolding, right? Um, but then some of these frameworks, right, get to the core of some really key institutions, such as whether you, or not you believe that government is a functioning part of society and that it can run an election in which your vote will count, right? So that's a specific scaffolding uh, that was primed. Um, it's like a specific framework coming into the election where more and more people were drawn into this idea that everything is broken, the entire system is rigged, and no matter what happens on November 3rd, 
it will have been cheated, right? So when you have that specific of a framework that's surrounding one event um, in which there's this, this just network of people pulling you in and bringing you more evidence, it's like, oh, you see this specific barcode on the outside of your ballot. You should interpret that in this way, right? Um, then you, you, it, it also stops people from looking for more evidence, right? It's, it's kind of like a crutch, right? You, you don't have to look for more evidence because you have this framework through which you understand the world. When it could be that that barcode is just, you know, part of how the mail-in ballot works and how your vote would be counted, right? But it it allows you to just take shortcuts and uh, align things into your view of the world much more quickly. Again, we all have these frameworks. We all have these lenses. Um, but it was really, really interesting to see a really specific one created around the election um, and which tied in so closely with online narratives and how, how that framework was created and reinforced um, in online spaces. Yeah, got it. Yeah, that is, yeah, that, that narrative of, Hey, yeah, you can't really trust the government to do anything. And so then anything that you see from the government is like, Oh God, I don't, don't, I'm not trusting this, this random barcode or whatever. Like, Oh, here's a kitten. Well, that kitten means that the government is, but Epstein did it or, you Mm -hmm. know, um, and so, uh, it's interesting. I think that there's, and, and it makes me just think of like a crucial meta thing that all people need to have is a desire to uh, have a like a scout mindset instead mm-hmm. of a soldier mindset and to actively be trying to understand their biases or you know actively looking for more evidence or whatever um, and I just think that that's a t- difficult thing with our reality now is that we just a lot of folks have um, this thing that says oh I'll just take it what it is as true instead of like actively trying to yeah, change their own beliefs or whatever. Do you think, I mean, one final note on that is like, there's the, inf- I, I feel like in something when I had Renee on the podcast, you know, a year or two ago, it was like, I was trying to, you know, I think both you and her talk a lot and, and generally the information ecosystem folks talk a lot about like how platforms work and what the friction of platforms is and how to, you know, counter disinformation, misinformation. But there's also this other perspective of like media literacy or whatever, um, which is like instead of a focusing on the information, you kind of focus on in the platforms, you focus on the people. Um, and what do you think about that? Like, what do you think about like how much impact we can have by up, kind of quote unquote upgrading the people themselves instead of trying to change mm, the platforms? Totally. I mean, that, that's, that's a very low, packed, packed question there. So let me try to break it down. Um, I mean, to your first point of what you were saying of, you know, having people with a scout mindset, super, super interesting. I would agree. I, you know, every single time I, you know, I'm going to news sources or trying to understand a new international problem, et cetera. I I really try to bring myself out of that framework of, okay, I need to read X, Y, Z sources, think about the problem this way. If, if, if I was trying to prove myself wrong, what would I say, et cetera? Sure. That's great. The, the funny thing about this guy scout mindset, though, and telling people, you know, you should question everything that you see, that's exactly the conspiratorial way of thinking about things, right? It's yeah. question everything, right? Um, nothing that you see is authoritative, right? So this is a really, really difficult problem, right? Um, because that framing is actually where a lot of these more conspiratorial communities already live. Um, so it's, it's, it's a difficult problem of, what are the upgraded authorities in kind of this new information ecosystem, right? 
Um, I think the Martin Gurry's Revolt of the Public book was the first was the first time I really started thinking about this um, in this way. And um, uh, just I think one of his main points in the book is um, the old authorities, they're not coming back. Right. Um, and, and now we have this public that is, you know, moving very quickly, coming to conclusions very quickly, nihilistic about everything, breaking everything down, questioning everything. Right. So in this new landscape, how do you think about authoritative information and what does that look like? Right. And it's not going to look like we're not going back. Right. We're not going back to nightly news. One person tells you, this is how you think about this international problem. Sounds good. Right. Um, so, so we have to be really creative there in terms of, okay, you know, so, so, so then what, what we're doing right now is not working out super well. Right. And it's, it's not a great, I I don't feel great about the idea that like demigod celebrities who are verified on Twitter are our new authorities. Right. (laughs) So, so what's a more creative solution here? Um, and, and I think the second part of your question was upgrading the people. Um, you, that, I totally agree, right? And media literacy is very, very core to this solution. Um, but we got to think about like, what are the priors that we're coming into with now, right? So we can't just X out the population that currently exists, right? And there's there's a new population of people. We can integrate it into public school education um, and think about, you know, how do we how do we teach people how the FDA works, right? People don't need to know how vaccines work to trust the vaccine, right? A lot of these conspiracy theories are about, oh, Fauci just woke up one day and allowed me to inject myself with Pfizer. No, if you understood how the vaccine uh, development and uh, approval process works, a lot of these conspiracies lose their legs, right? So how institutions work and teaching people how does an election get run how do these rules come up and how can I change these rules by engaging in civic processes? Um, that is very, very like that, that is extremely important. I, like understanding how the institutions that govern our lives work is something that nobody teaches and would solve a lot of these problems. Uh, but that has to be done in concert with, okay, there's people who are already very, very far gone. You know, what yep. are we going to do about that as well? Yeah, that makes sense. That's kind of like, a, it's a classic, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's like, yeah, how do we help the folks today? And also, how can we make sure that everybody's upgraded for tomorrow? Um, <laughs> and I like what you said about the demigod celebrities. That's a hilarious way to call it. It's like, okay, whatever Elon Musk says, you know, like, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and I think that there's my, yeah, I think hopefully the new influencers are kind of a networked influencer, which is where you just like look at a ecosystem of people in the climate tech space or in the, you know, uh, epidemiology space. And you kind of have a feed that incorporates a lot of their thoughts together. And then that thing, that like network of ideas is kind of the influencer. Or whatever. In any case, I have a question for you about, let's, let's transition to the um, virality project, which is the other big thing. And you were just starting to talk about some vaccine stuff and, and, and Dr. Fauci, how, tell us a little bit more about the virality project and what you all are trying to do with um, vaccines and misinformation. Totally. So the Virality Project is essentially, we finished the Election Integrity Partnership, we had a report to write, we realized that another huge disinformation crisis was on its way, and got the gang together again and set up a new partnership. (laughs) It's essentially how that came about. So um, a lot of the people who worked on the EIP are now working on the Virality Project, um, and we're we're just trying to bring what we learned from the election work and bring it to the space. it's everything from how does the team work together, right? We have academics working with 
for-profit companies working with think tanks, right? Like what are the different incentives and how do you align everyone into this like long-term marathon of a research project, right? Because at least with the election, we had an end date, right? But the vaccine, we have no idea when we're going to be done. We've been going since January and it's May right now. Um, and we'll be going through at least August, right? Um, so it's understanding, okay, especially with this model of, I think we call it internally a, a center of excellence model, right? A clearinghouse for disinformation. Uh, we It shouldn't live in um, an academic project for forever, right? I spend a lot of time thinking about, oh my God, we're going to run out of budget. Oh my gosh, you know, X, Y, Z. Um, ideally, this this work of real-time analysis of disinformation and working with the social media platforms, the civil society people, the government people, the academics, that whole framework, um, ideally we'll be able to put in a more long-standing space eventually. Uh, but this is just our V2 and we're trying to understand, okay, what didn't go well in the EIP? How do we make it better? Uh, who else do we involve? What other partners do we need? Um, and all the time making sure that we're doing the research, right? And gathering the facts on, okay, what do people believe about the vaccine? What are the communities that are most engaged? Are the tactics the same? Are we seeing new tactics to spread vaccine disinformation versus election disinformation? Um, so it's been very exciting, really great team. Um, a smaller effort for the EIP, we had 120 people at the peak. Um, and for the Virality Project, we've kept it slimmer because it's a longer project. So it's about 40 people, um, 40 to 50. Um, and, and, and yeah, we're, we're just trying to keep learning. We're trying to, 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 to advance this model and, uh, understand, uh, you know, how, how can we make impact right now and also think through, uh, th this model for the future. Yeah, that's interesting. I would, I would differentiate those two as like that model, you could call it the center for excellence model. You could call it a network of networks model or whatever is a kind of a new institutional form or, you know, it's it's the um, the partnership and the project or the kind of uh, this happened at the beginning of the pandemic a lot where folks were creating um, there's like the hashtag masks for all and the like um, it was it was groups that were aligned around a shared goal um, and are kind of coming from a bunch of different spots. And so it's like, what can this new kind of institution look like um, and how to like run those kinds of institutions? So it's cool that you all are thinking about um, that uh, on the other side of like the like, you know, object level, like on the ground, what kinds of patterns are you seeing uh, in the virality project? Like what are, are they similar to um, an election or not? Yeah. I think this is, this is one of my favorite parts of my job is just getting to think about how do you track disinformation in the most efficient way, right? Um, it's different from long-term academic research. Um, it's also different from, you know, if you were in an industry, right, and trying to get a product out really, really quickly. So, um, it's kind of in between the two and it's, uh, it's, it's so, so one specific example I can give is in the EIP, we had one of the, one of the problems we had is it's, it's kind of a whack-a-mole problem. Every day you can see a new post about someone who is dead, who supposedly voted. Right. And so we spent a lot of human power kind of analyzing all of these things, like putting a case study together, sending it to the platforms. Right. Um, one of the big upgrades I wanted to figure out for the Virality Project is how do you track narratives, not just incidents, right? How do you track the formation of these large-scale ideas, which we talked a lot about um, at the beginning of the, of the podcast? Um, and so how do we operationalize that collective sense-making process, right? 
Um, and so to that end, we developed some tech tooling for it. We modified our workspace management system to be tracking narratives, not just incidents. We had to retrain the analysts. Um, so it's, it's really interesting work because it's you have to understand a lot about how disinformation works. You have to understand a lot about people. You have to understand a lot about um, you know people and how they understand the ideas themselves. Um, and the tech behind it is really, really cool, right? It's, you know, how do you, how do you understand when one posts about a pregnant woman, uh, getting the vaccine and having a side effect, right? One week, that's a really interesting finding because it's signaling the surge of that narrative across different online communities. Another week, it's just another post, right? So all of this context is important, especially for our stakeholders to telling them, you know, what's important? What do you need to counter right now? Um, and that's a hard decision to make, right? Because you don't want to spread misinformation by going out and debunking something that's not that important. Um, so the stakes are high. Uh, the problem's really interesting, um, but it's, it's really great to work with people in this space because I found that everyone's super interested in the problem. It's a very novel kind of new growing area. Um, so really anyone can get into it right now because it's not like, there's a whole lot of people uh, that are gatekeeping it right now. So um, yeah. yeah. So whoever you are, get out there and start researching uh, misinformation, disinformation. Everyone. Is it what tech? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What tech platforms? Like, I know you all work with Replica, or like, how do you like? If I want to do this, and I want to like track the ongoing narratives within the like anti-vax or whatever world, how like how do you all do it? Totally. I mean, so we use a lot of open source investigation. Um, we do have some custom tools or API access just as, you know, being an academic institution. So we use a lot of CrowdTangle, which is a platform that you can uh, monitor Facebook with um, and Instagram and Reddit. Um, we have Twitter enterprise API, um, you know, just so we can get a whole lot of Twitter data, but there's, you know, non-private versions of all of these tools, right? Um, there's Twerk, which you can use to get the last seven days of Twitter data, which is really the only thing that's important in many of these cases. Um, Bellingcat has a really good OSINT, uh, handbook, uh, where you can use a lot of the tools that we use. Uh, so I would say, you know, it's maybe 60, 40, uh, open source tools versus specific licenses that we have. Um, but I would recommend everyone gets a CrowdTangle plugin at least. Um, that's something you can get on your Chrome. Um, and it allows you to see any link that you have. You can understand what engagement it's gotten across Facebook over the past forever, right? And that's really, really interesting information. You can see, oh, wow, this link that I'm on, actually a whole bunch of anti-vaccine pages shared it yesterday, right? So maybe I should think about when I'm reading, when I'm reading this, like who's been, who's been promoting it? Um, anyways, there's a, yeah. there's a lot of things out there. Yeah, no, I love it. That was essentially what I was looking for is like CrowdTangle. I will. I don't have CrowdTangle on my Google Chrome right now, but mm. I will after this call. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, I want to get into kind of rap mode here and ask a couple final questions, mostly or first some like overrated, underrated questions, which are I'll just say a thing and then you can say whether you think it's overrated or underrated. Um, the first is how hard it is to moderate video. Is that overrated or under? Cause it's like a big wow. theme for listeners uh, is that, yeah, it was like, Oh man, like TikTok and YouTube, it's hard to moderate them because it's not text. Is it overrated or underrated? How like hard it is? Gosh. Well, I, I don't feel super qualified to give this, to give this rating because I don't have the tool set and thousands of engineers that these platforms have. It is underrated how poorly they are moderated. 
um, the amount of work that the platforms claim it would take, I feel like is overrated, but surely it must be a very difficult problem uh, if they haven't figured it out yet. I mean, especially live streams. We talked a lot about live streams in the election. That was a huge problem. Uh, so I guess mixed bag here. <laughs> Under, so it sounds like you're, uh, the amount of impact that it has is like underrated, underrated. For sure. but the uh, amount that the platform's like, oh, but it's so hard to, is overrated. They're overrating I mean, they how have, much effort it would They take. have transcripts of all of the, <laughs> of the of the audio, at least that. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, <laughs> totally, surely it's, totally. it just seems like something could be done a bit more. Yeah, got it. Um, the other one is like a kind of a, what I would call like an elephant in the room of this. I mean, this isn't totally true, but is moderately true is, you know, the left versus right uh, side of this, where it's like a good amount of the misinformation, disinformation is like coming through the right, you know, and there's like, um, and at the same time, there's various things on the left. You know, I was just reading a nice article in the Atlantic today about how all the folks on the left are like not following the science and like, you know, making sure that kids can't be in schools or whatever. But um, how, how do you think about, I guess, the, um, is the amount that the misinformation flows through, uh, yeah, the amount that I, let me phrase the question: the amount that flows through primarily right-leaning ecosystems is that overrated or underrated? <sighs> okay, in the election, not overrated. In the election, we did see, and like you can go check our report of how we conducted the methodology, but the vast majority of the election fraud narratives were right-leaning and spread in right-leaning communities. However, one thing I'll say here that to caveat that is this idea of scaffolding, right? And this idea of how much are you believing random Instagram stories to get your factual evidence of what's happening in the world? And I think that's vastly underrated how, especially people in my generation, right? Like the Gen Zers and I'm, you know, I'm culpable of this as well, right? Of how much we are apt to believe some random person on Instagram posting a story about, um, XYZ issue and how I can explain it in 10 Instagram slides. You cannot explain fundamental issues in 10 Instagram slides, right? And priming the people kind of in this kind of new generation of very online people, students, et cetera, like priming ourselves to be so quick to jump to conclusions is not, it does not bode well for this whole, you know, the, the right will always be a disinformation machine and the left will never get there, right? Um, so I think that I would caveat that uh, with with that observation. Yeah, that makes sense. And as a final question here, um, is there, is, you know, for you as a Gen Zer, um, and for me, I'm I'm 29, so I'm like just at the millennial thing. What do you think that you as like a Gen Zer uh, bring to the kind of misinformation and disinformation world that perhaps older folks, 30 year old, 40 year old, whatever, that they don't quite understand or that like, is what is the unique perspective that Gen Zers have that that older folks might not have? Ooh, I hadn't thought about this one. I mean, it's growing up with the technology. Surely, there has to be some difference there, and just the empathy for understanding why online communities matter so much. Sometimes I, I mean, you know, talking to my parents is just kind of like, oh, well, it's just you know, people saying things online, right? But if you grow up in a way that, you know, the the majority of how you interact with your friends is online, I think it will become important in the coming years to have that empathy of uh, why people believe what they believe and understanding online communities really well. Uh, trying to explain Discord or Twitch to someone who doesn't understand that subculture is going to be very difficult. Um, and a lot of the times, I think that older populations 
see some of these things as a joke, right? Like the Wall Street bet stuff. It's it's just like a joke, right? And it's just silly teens doing X, Y, Z, right? But no, this is actually an incredible phenomenon. And you have to, and and I think that you, you would need that kind of dual perspective to understand both the subculture as well as the impacts um, that it could have on institutions um, and on the way that we conduct our life day to day right now. So I think that's maybe where I would, where I would land on that. Great. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's like you, they've never even been to a subreddit before. Yeah. So they don't really get it. It's a lot of so catch up work. <laughs> There's a lot of catch up work. There's a lot of catch up work. Um, okay. Well, thank you again for your time today, Isabel. And thank you for the work that you're doing with all of these partnerships and projects. Um, is there a place that uh, folks can, I, you can go to um, like check out election or what, what viralityproject.org maybe? Yeah. Viralityproject.org. Um, check us out. And where is it possible to find you? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, I, I have a Twitter. I don't remember my handle. Oh, yeah. It's I, I Garcia Camargo checking out on Twitter. Um, but really follow the virality project on Twitter. It's virality project, the handle, um, the team's going to continue doing a lot of great work through August. Um, and then we'll have a big final report. Um, and, and yeah, always open to chatting and especially chatting about finding these super, super interesting and exciting spaces, um, that are growing really quickly. I think, uh, a lot of people are interested in disinformation and don't really know how they can get into the space and, and work on these problems. Um, and there's a lot of opportunity right now. So, uh, pop into my DMs. Nice. Exactly. Slide to her DMs. If you're looking to do misinformation, disinformation, (laughs) um, with that, Isabella, thank you again for your time and goodbye listeners.